Amen. Thank you, April. God bless you guys. Welcome to Sovereign Grace, folks. Some people are happy to be here. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome. I'm glad y'all are here. We've got a few visitors with us this morning, and so I want to say welcome. Glad that you're here. You've got two new young little ones over here. Glad to see them with us as well. Uh, got some families over here. And I'll say that, uh, as you can see, our, our room is full, and that's a blessing to see. And it is such a blessing that Lisa and Madison Gentry had to sit on the front row this morning. <laughs> and Lisa confessed she's now out of her comfort zone. So because of her uncomfort, I think that's a motivation for us to get busy expanding this worship space into the warehouse. Amen. Amen. So that that being said here, uh, men uh, that I've been talking to, I think it's time for us to get together here pretty soon in the next week, if we can, to at least begin the con- the process of planning, thinking, figuring out how do we move into the warehouse. We need to start thinking about expanding. We really do. The Lord has blessed us. Amen. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue in this wonderful uh, Gospel. We are actually going to be closing out the chapter today, looking at verses 21 through 35. I mean, we now come to this. This is the last parable uh, in chapter 18, and it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. But Peter here in verse 21, as we begin to read in a second, he will ask Jesus a question, and the question will be in response to the previous verses that we looked at last week, verses 15 through 20, concerning the sin of a fellow brother in the faith that must be dealt with. So the parable that follows of the unforgiving servant, let's approach this parable with that context. This is a continual flow of teaching from Jesus. Remember, all of chapter 18, most scholars see this chapter as one sermon, one time of teaching from Jesus to his 12. And so if we think of it that way, everything in this chapter is connected in one idea in some way or form. It's not a collection of fragments of Jesus's teaching and just placed in Matthew doesn't seem to do that. It seems like Matthew is including a complete teaching here. So that's how we, I think we need to approach this parable. Okay. Peter's question in verse 21 now sets the scene for Jesus's teaching on forgiveness. I mean, let's remember before unpacking the lessons here in this parable, why forgiveness is key to the Christian walk. Why is forgiveness important? I mean, our first entrance into the church, into the kingdom of heaven as citizens of his kingdom is by forgiveness of sin. We're not part of the kingdom lest our sin be forgiven. I mean, therefore, I mean, Jesus teaches this parable to his 12, I think as a means of laying a strong foundation in them as they are building the church, especially after Jesus departs, these 12 will have the responsibility for his church. I mean, the scripture text for today is lengthy. So generally we will stand and read, but I think because it's such a lengthy passage, I'm going to ask that you just kind of read along in your Bible where you sit. If it was a shorter passage, I would ask you to stand, but and I want to be sensitive to that. So if you will just read along with me in the heart, verses 21 through 35 in your Bible, 
But let's stand before the Lord in our hearts as his word is worthy of honor. Amen. Beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Underline this. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35 is the answer here to Peter's question. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Dear God, this is a passage that may be awakening within some of us a unsettledness that we are holding grudges against someone. We're, with, we're withholding forgiveness where it is rightly due. And so God, I pray this morning as we, we understand, as we listen to your word, as we try to understand what you're saying in this word, that you would open our hearts to see your mercy, your never ending always ready and abundant mercy and forgiveness. And if we see that correctly, Lord, would that change us and motivate us and inspire us to convey that grace to others? Lord, we are so prone to keep lists. But Father, in, in your graciousness, you do not keep a list. And for that, Lord, we stand in awe. So, Lord, I pray that this time would be for your glory, that you would speak boldly to us, that you speak compassionately to us, that you would awaken within us what needs to be awakened. Use this time for your kingdom and glory, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. As Peter comes to Jesus, he, in, he, he, he pleads with Jesus. He, you know, he's inquiring with Jesus. Here's the question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now remember, verse 21 should be understood in the context of the previous verses. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's verse 15. And Jesus is teaching in verses 15 through 20 is this step, three-step process of dealing with an errant brother or sister who is refusing to listen to counsel. Yet, if you remember, the, the theme of this was for the purpose of that God does not want any of his children to perish. This is why Jesus charges his disciples, if, if someone sins against you, go and deal with it with compassion and love, but not out of, not out, not like a lynch mob, but out of like a Christian brother or sister who loves them and comes to them and says, I'm concerned about you. Do you see what's happening here? And so that's the context of verse 21. So now Peter, in his mind, hey, Jesus says there's three times here that we are to confront this brother or sister. So this is in his mind. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often then will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often do we have to keep doing this? I mean, Jesus hears the truth of Peter's question. Peter, like all of us, and really all self-centered people, are, are we not all self-centered? I mean, we wish to know the limits of our sin. We want to know the limits of how often we have to forgive this sinner. They're sinning against me. How much, how long do I have to deal with this? Right? I mean, to hold back forgiveness of a fellow Christian brother is sinful, as Jesus is going to show us in this parable. I mean, Peter's question, I think, reveals the limits of our own grace toward one another. How often do I forgive them? I mean, we must remember that Jesus teaches us that our entry into the fellowship of the kingdom and into the fellowship of the church is centered around the forgiveness of the debt, the guilt of our sin that must be cleansed for, in order for us to become part of the kingdom of heaven, in order for entry into the kingdom of heaven to be possible, this debt, this guilt that weighs us down with our sin must be dealt with. Otherwise, we're not in the kingdom. I mean, this the idea here is absolution of sin, absolution of the guilt that comes with sin, absolution of the debt tied to sin. It teaches us that we have no admission into the family of God unless his goodness, his mercy washes away the impurities of our heart, our iniquities, if you want to use that biblical term. We see this even in the Old Testament, all throughout Scripture, Jeremiah chapter 38. And I'm going to read Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 33 verse 8. I'm going to read two different versions of this, the ESV version, which I preach from, but then the King James, because I want to, it's going to show us some things, some differences here in the translation that will help us understand. Jeremiah 33 verse 8 in the ESV says this, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. The prophet Jeremiah spoke this, that God will forgive the guilt of sin. But then in the King James Version of the same verse, Jeremiah 33, 8, he says, King James says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. 
The idea of iniquity, the biblical idea of iniquity, I think we can see this in these two different translations, it's not just the act of sinning. Iniquity, it's the idea of guilt associated with the sin. Guilt of the sin. We're all guilty. We're all guilty as sinners, yes? But think about it, I mean, we're all guilty. I mean, we all carry the debt owed to our Lord. We carry that. It's a burden. Our Lord, our King, our God will forgive us. Of, he will cleanse us from our iniquity. He will release that guilt that associates with the sin. I mean, again, iniquity is not just little sinning. Iniquity is you are a guilty sinner. You're hopeless. You're condemned. That's what iniquity means. Now, for Peter to ask the question in verse 21, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many seven times? I mean, this question is really to ask the one sinned against his Lord how often we can get away with the guilt that is attached to the sin. Yeah, I'm guilty, Lord, but how many times can I get away with it? How long do we have to count this? How long do I have to keep forgiving someone who is guilty against me? He's asked, it's really kind of a twisted way of asking the Lord the same thing in a way. Seven times here, I think, implies the biblical idea of completion. Remember, the seven days of creation were complete. No more creating was required. So if Peter forgave a brother who sinned against him seven times... In his mind, certainly that was the perfect number of forgiving. Lord, if seven is complete for all of creation, certainly if I forgive seven times, isn't that enough? I think that may be part of his mind here. Nothing more is needed. Right? The weakness, I think, of Peter's question is the, the idea, the implied idea that forgiveness has limits. How many of us are guilty of that? Without realizing it, do we infer in our thoughts and our actions that forgiveness has limits? I mean, the weakness of Peter's question here is that the, it's the idea that even God's forgiveness has limits. And Jesus is going to pounce on this opportunity to teach him something. God spoke through the prophet Amos this idea, and this may be where Peter is getting this thought. Um, all throughout Amos, the, the, the Old Testament prophet, the minor prophet Amos, especially chapters 1 and 2, you're going to see this repeated phrase, from God through Amos. He says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So maybe from the minor prophets, the Old Testament prophets, this idea of forgiveness has limits is in Peter's mind. Maybe in our mind. We're studying the Minor Prophets on Wednesday nights. We started in Hosea this last week, so here's my shameless plug from the pulpit uh, in our commercialized culture that we now live in. Wednesday nights, we're going through the Minor Prophets, starting in Hosea. And we're going to see some of these ideas, so well, what does it mean? I mean, perhaps Peter here, when, he, when he's thinking of forgiveness, he's thinking of Amos here as Jesus, or as God is saying through Amos, for three transgressions and for four I will not revoke the punishment. As if it is God is withholding his mercy. 
I mean, maybe Peter doubles the standard of the three transgressions to six and then adds one more to seven as he was under Jesus's influence here. Because didn't Jesus, uh, doesn't he show that his mercy and grace is more abundant than our expectations? So maybe that's what Peter's doing here. But he has this in his mind. Maybe Peter wanted to impress Jesus with his biblical knowledge of Amos. I don't know. Could be. We don't know what's going on in Peter's mind. But Jesus goes even deeper here. He's going to give a bigger response to Peter's question. So let's look here at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And some translations say 77 times. I don't know if your translation says that. At this point, I think we got to clarify whether God's forgiveness is dependent here on a limit. I think Jesus' response here, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. I think we also need to think about this question, and this is one that I wrestled with this week, and I actually shared it with a couple of men in this church, and they were gracious enough to pray with me and actually bring some points of clarity to me, and, and we just kind of wrestled with this idea is Jesus here saying where, I mean, at this point, do we, does God's forgiveness depend upon repentance? In other words, is God's forgiveness, is it dependent on our repentance? I mean, in other words, does God hold back his forgiveness until the sinner repents? Does God hold back his forgiveness by limits? Is God's forgiveness bound by limits? And one of those limits could be, my forgiveness is limited until you repent. That's a thought that may be wrestled with here. There are passages of Scripture that seem to imply this. Here in Jeremiah chapter 3, if you're taking notes, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, this is God speaking through Jeremiah calling the northern tribe or the northern uh, kingdom of Israel in contrast to the southern tribe of Judah to come back home. Here is what he says in Jeremiah 3, verse 12 through 14. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only, here's the repentance part. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God, that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So the prophet Jeremiah seems to be implying here that God expects Israel, the northern kingdom at that time, remember the kingdoms had split, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against me and that you have not obeyed my voice. The implication seems to be, if you do this, then my anger will be appeased. That's a biblical concept here. Further in Hosea chapter 5, Hosea says, "I will." this is the Lord speaking through Hosea, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their distress earnestly seek me. That Hosea 5 verse 15 seems to imply God is saying, I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to return back to my place 
until they acknowledge their guilt. It's as if he's withdrawing his his favor until they acknowledge their guilt. In other words, it's like he's, he's expecting some type of repentance here. So I think there's a biblical process of this, but let's understand what Jesus is saying here. I mean, Jeremiah and Hosea's prophecy reveals God's message to the rebellious, again, the northern kingdom of Israel, that their sin is so heinous. Their sin is so heinous that they are no longer his, his children. That's what we see in Hosea. Hosea marries the prostitute Gomer, and there are children born. One is called his children, and one is called no mercy. We looked at that a little bit Wednesday night. I mean, the point of the Old Testament prophets, I think, is more on God's mercy while also calling for repentance from sin. But the emphasis is on God's mercy. Yet I think it's important to point out here that, let's think about this. Matthew's account here in Matthew 18, Jesus' answer to Peter does not mention repentance here. But Luke's account of the same conversation does. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So same, I mean, it's the same parallel passage from what Matthew's recording. Matthew doesn't imply here or you expressly say repent, but Luke's account does. Yet even in Luke's account, I think we have to be careful. Jesus does, he's not emphasizing repentance. He's emphasizing forgiveness. That doesn't belittle the need for repentance. It does not in any way weaken the requirement of the repentant heart. The question is, is God's forgiveness dependent upon our forgiveness? As if God is limited. That's the question. I mean, the preceding instruction in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 about confronting a sinful brother does imply the importance of repentance. I mean, when Jesus says in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, these phrases, if he listens to you, and if he does not listen, and if he refuses to listen, I think this implies a responsibility of repentance from the sinner to the offended. I mean, however, at the same time, there's no implication in Jesus' teaching that we're to fold our arms and hold a grudge against one who has sinned against us, and I'm not going to forgive you until you repent. That's not there either. I mean, the simple meaning of Jesus' idea of 70 times 7 in verse 22 is that just as God does not give up on anyone, neither should we. We're not to give up on them. God's forgiveness is limitless. Therefore, why do we hold on to our sin? Why do we not approach the throne of grace with a heart of repentance? I think that's the better idea of understanding repentance. God's forgiveness and grace is limitless. So what's holding you back from repenting? I mean, furthermore, I mean, the the multiplied number of 70 times 7, I think, illustrates the larger point of forgiveness as ongoing. I mean, our Lord does remit and he, he removes the guilt of our sin once for all on the cross. He does that. 
That's the purpose of the cross. The guilt of our sin is removed once and for all. Yet, forgiveness is ongoing as we continue to live as sinners in a sinful world. Therefore, His forgiveness has to be unlimited. Our approach to the throne must be unlimited. We cannot limit our approach to His grace. Amen? I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I mean, for what value is God's forgiveness, His pardon, if afterward there is no evidence of the pardon? I mean, think about this. The forgiveness of sin occurs repeatedly and is ongoing. It's not like this forgiveness yesterday somehow is no longer any good, so now we have to come back again and be forgiven again because the last one didn't stick. That's not the point. It's the point that God's forgiveness is limitless. And it's an ongoing thing. And he has compassion on the many sins, the many iniquities, the guilt that comes with our sin, and we carry that guilt, and, and, and we continue to collect this guilt, and we continue to collect the burden of sin upon us throughout our lives in our sinful struggle, yet it is Christ who releases the weight of that burden. Amen? No one could continue in the kingdom of God or the church if forgiveness only occurred one time and never again. Even though that forgiveness on the cross is complete and enough, forgiveness is ongoing. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I mean, our Lord is teaching Peter and he's teaching us in verse 22 that forgiveness of sin is perpetual and ongoing and often repeated and most importantly is always at the ready. It's always at the ready. Forgiveness of sin, pardon of sin is at the ready for the one who is repentant. I think that's the point here. The, the parable that follows this interaction between Peter and Jesus, I think, is going to show us God's unrelenting mercy, his unrelenting forgiveness, but then the expectation of the church to model the same. Let's look here in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. I mean, there's so much in this one verse concerning the debt of sin. There was a king who wished to settle the accounts with his servants. I mean, a king wants to settle the credit. He wants to settle the debt. These servants have an account with him. Those who have borrowed from his treasury, perhaps they had an advanced payment on their wages if they received wages, or they needed some help and he helped them with something and they borrowed. Whatever the purpose is, there's a debt. The king is owed. He's the one holding the accounts. The king's accountants bring before him in verse 24 a desperate case. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I mean, imagine the scene. The king's accountants are settling the king's accounts as he requested. There are accounts, some who owe small amounts, others owe large amounts, Now the accountants bring a desperate case before the king. They can't settle this one. 
How do we know that this is a desperate case, an impossible case? Only the king can settle this one. What is 10,000 talents? I mean, 10,000 talents was a lot. It was an impossible debt to repay. If you're taking notes, here's how we calculate 10,000 talents. A talent was 6,000 denarii. A denara, a denarius, the singular of denarii, a denarius was an average daily wage. We see that in Matthew 20, verse 2. So if a talent was 6,000 denarii, you would have owed 6,000 days of wages for one talent. 6,000 days of wages for one talent. This foolish servant who borrowed so much was 10,000 talents in debt. So 6 million days of wages if you do the math. That's how to think about this debt. Now do you see the weight? I mean, is anyone in this room in that kind of financial distress? Now how do you get into that kind of debt? He's got to be a fool. I mean, enslavement in debtor's prison was the only outcome for this fool. And I'm, I'm going to use that term lovingly, but it's real. He was a fool. If he's this kind of debt, he was a fool. How did he get there? I mean, verse 25 tells us that the king decreed that this man and his wife and his children and all the material goods they owned would be sold to try to somehow take a little bit of a bite out of this overwhelming balance of debt. I can't imagine selling his wife and his children into debtor's prison and selling what little he had as a servant would satisfy the debt. I mean, this foolish man had an impossible situation. And I think that's the point of the parable. That's why the servant, the accountants bring this desperate case before the king in verse 24. They brought to him a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Six million days of wages. Never be able to pay that back. Which is the point. I mean, when he... Verse 26 and 27. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, of course, that claim, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, that itself was an impossibility. And verse 27, here's the key. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. You hearing the gospel in there? Let's understand this. When we see here the plea of the indebted servant for mercy from his Lord, his master, notice his intent in his plea. I will pay you everything. He probably dreamed in his mind, hopefully there's some way I can get out of this. I mean, his plea is not for forgiveness of the debt. His, his plea was for patience in repaying the debt. That's important. His heart does seem broken. And we call this idea a heart of contrition. The broken and contrite heart in Psalm 51, I will not despise. I mean, the servant does not ask for forgiveness directly of the debt. He does not speak the words of repentance, he pleads for patience. He pledges to repay, although he knew it was impossible. And the king also knew it was impossible. 
I mean, the amount owed is too great. I mean, we saw the crushing amount of debt here in verse 24. The servant's plea was impossible. I mean, his words of, of supplication here, his pleading, his pleading with the king is no more than an unveiling of how oppressive the situation was. That's really all it is. That's kind of like repentance, isn't it? I am overwhelmed in this debt, my Lord. In some ways, this is repentance, and it's acknowledgement of the inability to repay. I mean, repentance is turning from, turning from your sin. That's what repentance is. But at the heart of repentance, too, is a heart of brokenness, a heart of acknowledging the impossibility of the debt. And this is what makes his act, the king's act of mercy all the more important here, I think. And remember the key part of the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter six, that all believers are called to routinely pray to the Father in heaven. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others. I mean, it's an ongoing reminder. Jesus teaches this prayer as an ongoing reminder to come to the throne of heaven. The once for all paid debt of sin on the cross does cover all sin, past, present, and future of God's people, but our sin, again, like we said, is ongoing. So we are called upon to confess our sin, ask for forgiveness as an ongoing practice of humility, as an ongoing practice of remembering where our debt is paid. Then in verse 27, notice the king's response from this plea. Out of pity for him. The king had pity. I mean, the king shows mercy on this impossible situation. He shows mercy upon the plea of this fool. I mean, he's released from the slavery of his debt and he's forgiven out of pity. I mean, the king calls for his release from debtor's prison. Verse 25, I get the impression, verse 25, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. Remember back in verse 25? So when he could not pay, the order was just go ahead and send him to prison. By the time we get to verse 26 and 27, the master released him as if he was held in prison. I mean, the mercy shown here is important, and I think it carries with it the responsibility of the sinner. We all have responsibilities as sinners, to come to the only source of mercy and forgiveness that is possible. We are called to this by a holy God, a merciful and compassionate God who is also just. And we have a responsibility to that calling. Yet this mercy of the king also shows, I think here he had mercy for him. This king is showing the greatness of God's mercy and forgiveness. But think about this. Think about the status of a king. And, of course, and apparently this week uh, in England, we now have a king, the passing of Elizabeth II. A sad occasion, but the arise of a new king, King Charles III. You know what it means to be a king? You can do whatever you want. You re- I mean, there, there are some limits, I think, in the monarchy in Britain. You've got some boundaries, but pretty much he can do what he wants. Right, And especially when it comes to granting mercy, the king is under no obligation at all to forgive the debt of this man. He's under no obligation, no law says he must. 
No matter how much the indebted servant pleaded, no matter how much he begged, no matter how much he even repented, the king is under no obligation to forgive. He's not bound by any law. Yet this mercy of the king, I mean, it shows so much of how good he is. Whatever forgiveness comes is never an obligation of the king, nor is he ever coerced or forced to forgive. That is how great his mercy is. I mean, the king pardons not just the minor offenses, nor does he pardon only once or twice, but as often as we sense our faults and are broken under our debt, and as often as the king himself feels merciful, he will give mercy. Mercy is available, but mercy is not guaranteed in this parable. It's not guaranteed. It's available. It's not guaranteed. I mean, the mercy and forgiveness was not because of the servant's plea. The mercy and forgiveness was because of the king's pity. That's important. Now, he does say here, um, out of pity for him, the master forgave the servant and released him and forgave him. It's not that he... Well, but down in verse 32, he does say, because you pleaded with me, but it's not like the king had an obligation for the plea. But the plea did have a factor here in the mercy. But he still didn't have to. That's the kingdom. That's the, that's the, that's the royal place of being a king. I mean, the mercy and forgiveness was out of pity for him. Nothing of the servant played any role in this mercy from the king. Nothing. Now let's look at verses 28 to 31. Notice the foolish actions of this indebted man in response to the mercy shown him. He leaves the great mercy hall of the king and finds someone who owed him 100 denarii. In other words, 100 days wages. Still a pretty decent debt. 100 days wages is still a... a I wouldn't be able to pay back 100 days wages, would you, anytime soon? I mean, it's still, it's still bad, but nothing in comparison... To I mean, this forgiven man who's just saw the greatest mercy of the king ever shown should have had a lifted burden from his shoulders that would give him levity for others. But no, I mean, this ungrateful, unforgiving, foolish servant is cruel and he tosses this other offender into debtor's prison where he himself should have been. Verse 28 and 30, seizing him, he began to choke him saying, I mean, Imagine the, uh, imagine the aggression here. He choked him. Pay me what you owe. And then in verse 30, he refused mercy and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. I mean, I think we can see clearly here in this parable that there's a twofold lesson that Jesus wants us to see. Number one, forgiveness is abundantly ready to be granted. But forgiveness then should also be abundantly ready by us to be conveyed to others. I mean, but we had to see here from verse 35 that both the repentance and the forgiveness must come from the heart. This is the key, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Repentance that is not genuine, that is only from the lips, 
that is only an outward action alone, maybe to please someone, maybe to get the preacher off your back, maybe in a, in a vain attempt to get the Holy Spirit out of your heart because the heart will convict us of our sin. Okay, I'm just going to say the words. Maybe the Holy Spirit will leave me alone. Vain repentance leads to nothing. Just as God in his mercy grants forgiveness for the person with a broken and contrite heart, we too are to be merciful and grant forgiveness for the brother who sins against us. I mean, the point of this parable has less to do with whether we should wait for repentance from the sinful brother or sister and more to do with a spirit of forgiveness. I think that's the lesson here. Verse 35, Jesus describes the lesson of the parable as the lesson he wanted Peter to learn. Verse 21, remember Peter's question? Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And then the response is no, 70 times seven. The answer is in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, the penalty is what is in verses 32 through 34. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. Now, I don't want to open up the can of worms here about whether this is a text that says that you can lose your salvation. That's a different sermon. I don't think that's what it says. I think the lesson here is a different lesson. The foolish debtor. I mean, notice the first judgment of the king in verse 25 against this foolish debtor. Verse 25, since he could not pay, the king ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had. We see justice at work there in verse 25. God is just. And justice demands that debt be paid. But we also see mercy. This foolish debtor begs for mercy. And the mercy of the king released him from his debt. But I think what we see here in this text, in this parable, is that this plea for mercy from this sinner, this, this servant, was a vain promise. It was a vain plea. And the king saw the truth and said, you never really meant it. My forgiveness never stuck with you. It's evidence that I think he was never really repentant, nor was he ever really in the king's grace. I think that's evidence here. I mean, this foolish debtor shows his true unforgiven heart. And he has an unforgiving heart towards someone else. He lacks gratitude and mercy toward a lesser offender. But notice here in verse 31. When he refused to forgive this other person, verse 31, he was watched. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Verse 31, I think, is an echo of what we just saw in verses 15 through 20. When your fellow brothers and sisters see that you are not echoing and expressing the same forgiveness that God has forgiven you of, 
When you do not express that and convey that to others, I think what happens here in verse 31, you are now subject to someone in the church, a brother or sister to confront you. That's what they did. They went and told the king. Mercy is an act of compassion and forgiveness. It is compassion in the moment, a compassion in the circumstance. And the forgiven servant should have shown mercy to another one, but he did not. The point of this parable is not that God is eagerly waiting for us to repent. He's not sitting back passively saying, oh, would you please, would you please come and ask for forgiveness so that I can forgive you? That's not the point of the text. I mean, the point of this parable, I think, is that we're to have a heart of forgiveness toward those who sin against us. That's the lesson. This parable answers Peter's question. Really, in verse 21, when he asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him as many as seven times? I think Jesus teaches this parable by telling Peter, you're asking the wrong question, Peter. It's not how many times you forgive. It's not even how many times the person deserves forgiveness. That's the wrong question. The right question is, how big is the mercy and forgiveness of my God? And how often can I convey that to others? I think that's the lesson here. God is the king. Let's remember that. He is the king. He is the master. He is God. And so we see in Scripture that God will be merciful to whom He will be merciful, and He will show grace to whom He will show grace. He is under no obligation to count the number of times He's graceful. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, God says this, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And this comes from His interaction with Moses as Moses intercedes for the sinful people. And this idea is repeated again in Romans chapter 9, verse 15. God grants mercy to whom he grants mercy. He forgives who he will forgive. He is under no obligation to keep a list and keep a record of who he forgives and who he does not. We, on the other hand, do not have that luxury. This is the point I want to bring out. Now, I'm going to close with this point. We are not God. God's mercy and forgiveness is endless. So should we be endless in our giving of mercy. But we do not have the luxury of choosing who we give mercy to and who we do not. God does. I think Jesus' answer to Peter emphasizes that we are not like God in giving mercy because we're not as gracious and merciful and forgiving as God is. I mean, that's his nature. That's not our nature. Jesus holds us to a different standard of forgiveness. We're expected to forgive our brother from our heart, verse 35. We're expected to forgive always, not keep a list. Notice that Jesus does not grant Peter the privilege to choose when and who to forgive. We're not given that. Only God has that right because he sees the heart. We're not given the right to demand repentance before we forgive either. I think that's the point here. We are not given the right to demand repentance before we forgive. We are expected to have a heart of forgiveness. I mean, if a brother sins against us, we show him mercy. 
If a brother sins against us, we forgive him 70 times 7. That's the lesson. For us, forgiveness is demanded. A heart of forgiveness is the lesson. Let's remember here, though, the lesson from Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think that lesson teaches us that it's not about keeping a list of who repents or not. It's about do we forgive others or not? If Jesus paid the price for our sin and God granted us forgiveness, a forgiveness that was not obligated or mandated, but it was also taking care of a debt that was impossible for us to pay, how much more so she would be joyful and share that with others? I think that's the point. I mean, God's mercy and forgiveness are His alone to grant. We are unworthy. His nature is gracious and merciful. Our nature is sinful and it is apart from grace and mercy. So how we respond to that unmerited mercy that God gives us shows our true heart. That's the lesson. We forgive endlessly and always, no matter how hard it is. I have to forgive them? Come on, God. Don't do that to me. Let's just be honest. Let's be real. We do not count how many times we are merciful and stand on that merit as if we now earn God's favor. Look at how many times I forgive God. That's what Peter was trying to say. I mean, this parable expects the forgiveness received to be forgiveness conveyed. I mean, this parable, let's think about this. We're going to close with this point. The parable begins with judgment. We all have a huge debt to pay that we cannot pay. The parable centers on grace, the plea and the pardon. But then the parable ends with a final judgment. We will be held responsible for how we convey the grace and the forgiveness that God gives us. And let that sink in. I mean, this parable expects the forgiveness received to be forgiveness conveyed. I mean, free pardon by a gracious God, does not mean that He cancels judgment. It means the debt of the judgment is satisfied. I mean, we live between two judgments. The first is of our sinful condemnation. The last is the final judgment scene where our application of God's grace and His mercy that fills this timeline that we're currently in between the judgments will be reviewed. Verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think that casting back into the jailers and into the debtors' prison is not a withdrawal of forgiveness. It is the final judgment of our Lord when He sees that we have not given that mercy to others. Something to ponder. Nathan, come on forward, brother. Let me close this in prayer. And as Nathan prepares to close this with a final song, I want to use this, I want to remind you, this is a time to reflect upon the text. Has God spoken into us something? 
Has He awakened something in us? Do we need to deal with this? Are we trusting that Christ is sufficient? Are we trusting that He has done it all on the cross, that our sins are forgiven if He grants that forgiveness to a repentant heart? Is our sin forgiven? How many people know that their sin is forgiven? Now how many of you go in and forgive others just as much? David does back here in the back. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Father God, I do pray that You would cause this parable of Jesus and His lesson to Peter to resonate within us. Lord, You are so worthy of honor and praise because You are a merciful and gracious God. You do not have to forgive us. But you do, and you do it because you paid the price for our sin through the blood of your Son. And we rest in that. God, I do pray that you would honor our obedience to you and our brokenness before you, that you would honor us with your presence and your mercy even now. It is not because we have earned your mercy through our repentance. We've not even earned your mercy through our broken heart. God, your mercy is granted freely. And when it is granted, Lord, we are humbled. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who is wrestling with this, who, is, who does not feel forgiven, who has not seen your mercy poured upon them, I pray, God, that you would have mercy on their sinful heart but that your spirit would also bring them to a point of repentance and gratitude and worshipful joy before you because of that. Lord, forgive us because we do fail you every single day. Please pour out your endless mercy upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.